Well, good morning. Let us uh, open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, 4. Can't believe I got confused. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. We have a lot to cover this morning, so uh, it may sound a little faster than normal. And that's intentional. Uh, before we read, let me just kind of uh, set us up for what we will do. Um, let me remind you of what we have covered so far out of the letter of, of Ephesians. In chapter 1, we were reminded by the Apostle Paul of our position in Christ. We are in Christ. And he is our identity. In chapter 2, we were told how God accomplished this in our lives. He made us alive together with Christ. In chapter 3, we were told how God is accomplishing his purposes in the world through the church. And he's displaying his perfect wisdom through the church. And several weeks ago, we landed on chapter 4 of Ephesians. And the first verse of chapter 4 says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this, my friends, is a summary of the entire second half of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, 5, and 6 could be summarized as that, walking in a manner worthy of the call. So the word walking is essential, is critical, that we understand that word for uh, the meaning of everything Paul says in chapters 4, 5, and 6. The word walk is a Hebrew expression that talks about living life, how you live your life. That's how they spoke about living. So to walk is to live. Therefore, every time the Apostle Paul says walk in this manner, he's telling us to live in a certain way. So what I want to do is to show you how the second half of Ephesians will unfold. So he's telling us, he's calling us to walk. And this is the key word for this entire second half. And so I want to show you what that walk looks like. First, we already saw that the first calling from the Apostle Paul is that we walk in Christian unity. And we spent several weeks looking at that. And we found that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So one expression of life in Christ is unity. Second, Paul calls us to walk now in practical holiness, in practical holiness. And we will find this in chapter four, beginning in verse 17 through chapter five, verse 14. And this will be the center of our thinking for the next several weeks beginning today. Third, Paul will call us to walk in relational wisdom. And that goes from chapter five, verse 15 through chapter six, Verse 9. And finally, Paul will call us all to walk in the strength of the Lord. In the strength of the Lord. And we will find this in chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. So there you have it. That is a summary of what you can expect 
for the remaining of our study in the book of Ephesians. Our call to walk worthy of the gospel means to walk in Christian unity, to walk in practical holiness, to walk in relational wisdom, and to walk in the strength of the Lord. That is a summary of the second half of the book of Ephesians. Last Sunday, we closed our study on Christian unity. Today, this morning, we are beginning a study on Paul's second major call to us as Christians. And this is our call to holiness, to practical holiness. And as I said a moment ago, this goes from chapter 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 14. So by way of introduction, guess what we're going to do? We're going to read it all. All right, let's begin in verse 17 of chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk, and there it is, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness, hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As we embark on this call to practical unity, I want to give you five general remarks about Christian holiness. Those are not included in your notes, but if you want to take notes, that's fine. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. What I want to do is to provide you with a general framework within which we can think of the call to Christian unity. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. Now, before we read that chapter, that verse, let me give you some context. This is a crucial time in the life of Israel. Three months prior to this moment, they came out of slavery. They had spent many, many years in slavery in Egypt. And so they came to this point. And then three days later, after this particular event that we're about to read about, God gave them the Ten Commandments. So God will remind Egypt, I mean, Israel of the past, their liberation, their deliverance from sin and Egypt, and he will prepare them for the future. In three days, God will make a covenant with them. So let us read beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, meaning the third month, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people, people of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I de- did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I want to glean five general remarks about Christian holiness out of this particular text. Number one, holiness is the purpose of salvation, not an afterthought. Holiness is the purpose of salvation, not an afterthought. It is clear after reading these few verses that God rescued his people, the people of Israel, not because they were holy and good, but rather he brought them out of Egypt so that they would be holy and good. The purpose of their deliverance from Egyptian, Egyptian bondage was to make a holy nation out of them, separated for and unto the purposes of God. Now, fast forward with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and what do we read? We read this God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. Can you see the relevance before time began? Holiness was God's purpose for all his people. Before you and I were in our mother's womb, God had decreed that he would call you and I to salvation, which includes our becoming holy. 
You see, God's purposes have not changed. They remain the same as in the days of Moses. Here's the second general remark that I want to make. Holiness is a command for the people of God, not an option. Holiness is a command for the people of God, not an option. Those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ are commanded to live in holiness. Christians, we don't have a choice in this matter. God doesn't make a request that is contingent upon our approval. God makes commands that we ought to obey. And if you're a Christian, holiness is not optional for you. Number three, holiness is imitation of God, not self-fulfillment. Holiness is imitation of God. In in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, we read these words from the Lord to the people of Israel. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Fast forward thousands of years later, and in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, what do we read? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The essence of the call to holiness in the Christian life has not changed. God desires his people, those who call upon his name, to imitate him. This is what our call to practical holiness consists of. It is a call to imitate God, to seek to be like him in the way we live our lives in the world. It is about ordering the the, the direction of our lives toward God, not toward the world or ourselves. So the call to holiness then is a call to self-denial on the one hand and God-centeredness on the other hand. And this is how we ought to live our lives. And it includes all of it, all of life, all of life lived to the glory of God. Number four, holiness is living life in light of our election. Holiness is living life in light of our election. When God spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses, He, God, made a sharp distinction between Israel and Egypt. In fact, God explicitly says, you yourselves have seen what I did. Who did? God. What I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Did you catch that? God essentially tells them, When I sent those plagues into the land of Egypt, I sent them specifically to the Egyptians, not to you. The plagues were meant to afflict the Egyptians, not you. You yourselves saw it. They are not my people. You are my people. God communicates in no uncertain terms that he chose them, not the Egyptians. God made a distinction between them. I elected you, says God. I call you, says God. Therefore, live in light of your election. What is the church? What is the church? Well, the church is the people of God, chosen by God, elected by God. Therefore, we can conclude that our call to live holy lives in this world is also a call to live in light of our eternal election. The Lord is telling us this morning, essentially the same words. I chose you out of the world and I elected you out of the world. 
out of all the peoples of the earth. Therefore, live as a people separated, set apart for my purposes. We need to understand, we must understand then that embedded in our call to salvation is also our call to be distinct, to be distinct from the world. We cannot separate our call to salvation from our call to holiness. If God has called you to salvation, God has called you to holiness. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. And number five, five general remark. Holiness in the Christian life is about freedom, not legalism. Holiness is about freedom, not legalism. A key aspect of holiness that we often miss is that our, to live lives as imitators of God and as people who live separate from the world is a call to actual spiritual freedom. Sometimes when people think of holiness, they, they get confused and they, they think of uh, legalistic people, fanatics or something like that. But that is not the biblical picture of holiness. Let me tell you what holiness is. Holiness for the Christian is actually nothing other than the visible and practical manifestation of spiritual freedom from sin. That is what holiness is. Consider once again, the words the Lord spoke through Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, you shall be to me a holy nation. Just as God called Israel to holiness in response to their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, so too Christian holiness is the soul's response to our deliverance from sin's bondage. If the son has set you free, you are free indeed. You are free to walk in holiness. Now with those five general remarks in the back of our mind, let us proceed to ask the crucial question that we must all answer as believers. And here is the crucial question. What does practical holiness look like in the Christian life? What does it look like to walk in holiness? Well, the apostle Paul will answer this question in a series of exhortations that we read. These are calls to action that we cannot miss. But this morning, this morning, we will learn that the path to practical holiness in the Christian life always, always begins with the mind always begins with the mind. It all begins with the mind living life in practical holiness to the glory of God is a process that starts with our thinking, with our thinking, your thoughts matter. Your mind is precisely where the battle for holiness takes place. This is why Paul begins this section on practical holiness by addressing the mind. So I want to give you four considerations. And at the end, I will give you four words of counsel. Consideration number one, consider the command issued regarding the mind. Consider the command. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? 
well, in the futility of their mind. I want to make sure that we understand this from the beginning. We believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have no right to think independent thoughts that are not shaped and informed by the word of God. We will talk about that more next Sunday, but I want to be clear about this. Even today, when God saves a person from their sins, God saves all of that person, including his or her thoughts. In other words, as a believer, as a believer, you must have renewed thoughts because your thoughts also belong to God. Your thoughts belong to God. When Christ came and shed his blood, you know what he was, he was buying, what he was purchasing? All of you. All of you, including the thoughts in your head. Yes, your very thoughts, those things that no one can see, yeah, those belong to God. Those belong to God. God wants all of you. Now, I will seek to develop that idea a little more next Sunday when we look at verses 20 through 24. But here's Paul's starting point. Unbelievers think differently than we do. Unbelievers think differently than we do. So much so that our thinking as Christians does not go along with theirs. There's a fundamental difference in the way Christians ought to think about what? About everything. About everything. But wait a minute. You don't have to be a Christian to know or think that two and two, two plus two equals four. Doesn't everybody know that? Even though some people are actually questioning that today. It's kind of crazy. But doesn't everybody know that two plus two equals four? And you don't have to be a Christian to come to that conclusion, right? So we all think the same. Well, actually, let me put it this way. If you are not a Christian, but you believe that two plus two equals four, you should be in a constant state of perplexity. Why? Because you simply cannot account for mathematical precision and consistency. If you remove God from the equation, nothing makes sense. The problem is some people don't acknowledge this. Only Christians can live consistent lives. What I'm trying to say is this. When a person denies God, they are trapped in a world of utter mental chaos. This is what Paul calls the futility, the futility of the unbeliever's mind. And I will say more about that in just a moment. But the first thing that we must understand is this. At the most fundamental level, Sin expresses itself in thoughts that are rebellious toward God. This is where it all begins in the life of the mind. In other words, one of the ways in which the pervasiveness of sin shows itself in man is by his refusal. Think about this is by his refusal to think as a creature made in the image of God and accountable to him. And this is what unbelievers or what Paul calls Gentiles do. This is what they do. They do not want to bring their thoughts captive to the authority of God as revealed in his word. So herein lies the fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians. The Christian is seeking to think God's thoughts after him. 
to mold his thoughts after the word of God, while the non-Christian is seeking to think as an independent creature. This is why the world does what it does. This is why the world behaves the way it does. In short, the unbeliever, and I'm going to throw here a big word, but I'll try to explain it. This is why the world, the unbeliever, wants epistemological autonomy. Epistemological autonomy. Epistemology is a philosophical term that refers to knowledge. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy that seeks to answer the question, how do we know what we know? Sounds pretty boring, doesn't it? It is actually not boring because this lies at the very heart of what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 17. Unbelievers seek to be autonomous thinkers, meaning they do not want to be accountable to God for their thoughts. They don't, they don't want accountability to God for their thoughts. They want to think whatever they want and interpret the world however they want. They want epistemological independence. What do we want as Christians? We want epistemological dependence. We want God to tell us how to think of COVID-19. We want God to tell us how to think of social unrest. We want God to tell us how to think of the family, of relationships, of work, of money. We want God to tell us and we want to submit our thoughts to God's authority. And this is the fundamental difference between how we think as Christians, how the world thinks. We know truth because God has revealed himself in his written word. Our minds, our thinking, and our knowledge are no longer futile. God has provided meaning. Christians do not think like non-Christians. What is an immediate implication of this? Well, consider this. You should not be surprised if you're a Christian. You should not be surprised by the fact that if you spend much time in the word, you will not be able to think like the world. It is an immediate implication of this. If you are a Christian who spends much time in the word, you will begin to see that it is harder and harder to follow the thinking of the world. And you will begin to see differences, significant differences. So, if you want to go along with the world and be a friend of the world and think like the world, stop reading your Bible. Soon enough, you will get what you want. But if on the other hand, you're a Christian and you want to walk in holiness, then do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your Thinking your mind. Number two, consider the power ascribed to the mind. Consider the power ascribed to the mind. It is interesting. Paul says, you must no longer walk, meaning live as the Gentiles do. Well, how do they live? How do they walk in the futility of what? Their minds. How powerful is the mind? Is so powerful, your mind determines how you live. Your mind determines how you live. This is powerful. 
This is what Paul is saying. Worldly lives are the product of godless thinking. Worldly lives are the pro- product of godless thinking. Likewise, holy lives are the product of godly thinking. Amazing. The condition of the mind determines the direction of your life. The condition of your mind determines the direction of your life. Unbelievers walk, they live in accordance with their unredeemed thoughts. Therefore, the depravity, the immorality, the violence, the chaos, and the hatred that we're seeing in the world today is nothing but unredeemed thinking in action. That's what we are seeing today. All the immorality, all the chaos, all the hatred, everything that is happening in the world is unredeemed thinking in action. And what is the church? Redeemed thinking in action. There's a fundamental difference. There's a reason why the Bible places such a huge importance on the mind. And this is why we read from prophet Isaiah You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And we hear from Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your mind. And from the apostle Paul, we read, I myself serve the law, the law of God with my mind or to set the mind on the spirit is life. To the Corinthians, the apostle Paul said, but we have the mind of Christ. And to the Philippians, the apostle Paul said, have this mind among yourselves. Why so much emphasis on the mind? Here's the simple answer. You can either walk in the futility of your mind or in the renewal of your mind, but you will live according to the condition of your mind, whether for God's glory or for selfish desires, but you cannot do both. You cannot do both. So how are you living your life? Well, it depends on your thoughts. It depends on your thinking. So here in, lies the power of the mind. Consideration number three, consider the description offered of the mind. Consider how Paul describes the unredeemed mind, the mind of unbelievers. Consider the words he uses, futile, dark, alienated from God, ignorant, callous. I didn't come up with that list. This is what Paul says. People outside of Christ, their minds are futile, dark, alienated from God, ignorant, callous. The word futility probably sums it up very well. There are, there are two words that most major translations of the Bible use. One is futility. The other one is vanity, futility or vanity. Those are the two main words chosen by most Bible translations. You know what futility and vanity mean? Here it is. The condition or quality of being useless or ineffective. Imagine that Paul describes the unbelieving mind as useless and ineffective. You know, are some synonyms of the word futile, barren, fruitless, 
unavailing, unprofitable, unsuccessful. I said that one of the marks of the non-Christian is that he or she is always seeking thought independence. They don't want to think, think under the authority of God. They want epistemological autonomy. He doesn't want to be accountable to God. He wants to think in one of two ways. Number one, either as though there is no creator to whom he is accountable or two, as though there is a creator, but he doesn't have the right to tell him what to think or how to think. Both are sinful. Think of how the Bible talks about knowledge and thinking. What does Proverbs 1, 7 says? The fear of the Lord is the end of wisdom? No, it doesn't say that. It says the fear of the Lord is the very beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What is the beginning of knowledge? The fear of God. In order for you to think rightly about anything, guess what you have to do? You have to acknowledge the supremacy of God over all things. If you deny that, you can no longer think rightly about anything. Everything will be chaos. Therefore, in order for you and I to think rightly, we must first fear God. But the problem is, how does Paul describe the world? In Romans 3.18, nine words describe the entire world. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Because there is no fear of God before the world's eyes, you cannot expect the world to know how to think. Their minds are sold to sin. Without the fear of God, there is no righteous thinking. And my friends, the fear of God is the starting point. And this is precisely what the unbelieving world does not have. Now, let me show you something real quick. Consider what it says in verse 18. Some people might think you are being too harsh on the world. After all, doesn't it say in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Isn't the whole problem just that they lack knowledge. We need just to give them a little more knowledge because they're ignorant. Well, no, that's not the problem. Ignorance does not refer to lack of information, but to the suppression of the truth. They already know. Yeah. So let me just give you a, a, a quick example. Uh, for the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court, to uphold a law that says it is okay for a man to marry another man, or for you to be whatever you want, you know what that is? That is sinful thinking that comes after suppressing the truth they already know. This is rebellious, it is immoral. So ignorance is not, in, in the unbeliever, is not lack of facts about God, but moral rebellion against him. This is why the world is accountable to God. They know the truth. They want to suppress it. What about you and I? Well, we don't live like that. We don't live like that. We'll live under the authority of God. Consideration number four. It's only 1119. So early. 
We have plenty of time. I was worried. I'm not worried anymore. I'm going to take my time. Just kidding. Actually, I will <laughs> take my time. Number four, consider the outcome of unredeemed thinking. Consider the outcome. Verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let me tell you something, my friend. You know what is one of the most terrifying things that God can do to you? Is to allow for your evil thoughts to become reality. Oh, what a fearful thought it is that if God removes his grace from my thinking, if God removes his restraining grace from my thinking, I will become the evil that I think. And what, what you're seeing in the world is, is that, is God removing his restraining grace from people's ability to think. And all the immorality that you see in the world is God giving people up, turning them over. So basically what God is doing is this. This is how you want to think. There you go. Live like it. What a terrifying thing. Once again, if, if your mind is futile, your life will eventually show itself. At times, the futility of a person's mind may take a long time to manifest itself. But over time, the unredeemed nature of a mind will bring forth fruit consistent with itself. Listen, let me give you another example. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or that's what you claim to be, but you persist, you persist in letting your thoughts go into places of sexual immorality. Okay? If you persist and you, not, you do not want to call those thoughts under the authority of God and you persist in thinking immoral thoughts, you're just letting your mind wander, do not be surprised if the Lord gives you what you want. As the mind goes, so goes the life. I want you, I want you and I to think about the world as it is right now. How did we get there? What is taking place in our nation and around the world? Here's what's happening. The unredeemed mind has been set free to do whatever it wants. Make no mistake about this. God is giving unbelievers over to the futility of their mind. Do you know what the word callous means? A callous mind. You know what it means? It is this. It is to be so hardened that one is not bothered by the implications of what one is doing. 
You know what a sign of a callous mind is? Your sin no longer bothers you. Oh, my friend, if, if that's the case, if your sin no longer bothers you, be aware. Be aware. See your conscience. Sign of danger. Let me give you four words of counsel for Christians and we'll, we'll be done. We'll keep these very short. Number one, remember that your mind is never in a neutral state. Remember that your mind is never in a neutral state. In Romans chapter 8 verse 6, Paul says that to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. What is the key word? To set your mind. In the original, it has the idea of purpose. Purpose. To set the mind is to purposefully guide your thoughts in a particular direction. And believe me, if you don't guide your thoughts in a particular direction, your thoughts will go somewhere. They're always going somewhere. Number two, pay close attention to the thoughts upon which your mind tends to dwell. Pay close attention to the thoughts upon which your mind tends to dwell. Few things are more telling of the condition of your inner being than the direction of your thoughts when they are free to wander anywhere they please. Think about your thoughts. Think about your thoughts and consider the health of your life. Number three, Never take the health of your mind for granted. Never take the health of your mind for granted. I'm going to let you develop that one on your own. And number four, be aware of the influences around you. Let me finish by taking you to second Kings, second Kings chapter 17. This is recounting the fall of the Northern kingdom, Israel. So Judah was in the South. It was a divided kingdom by, by then because of Solomon's sin. So Judah was in the south and Israel was the northern kingdom. And here is what happened. The northern kingdom fell. So let us begin reading in verse 13 of 2 Kings chapter 17. There's a key word that I want to show you in this story. Verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded you, you your fathers, and that I set to you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14, but you would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord, their God. Verse 15. 
They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became, you know what that word is? False. It's the same word for vanity. Futile. They became futile and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. You know what the problem was? You know what they fail? They stopped thinking according to the law of God. Anyone who rejects the law of God as the standard for your thoughts, your thinking and your life, it will happen to you as well. Be aware of the influences around you. We're living in dangerous times, very dangerous times. Take care of your thoughts. Take care of your mind. Saturate yourself with the scripture. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the teaching of your word, which at times can sound a little harsh to some of our ears, but yet you are warning us. There are so many, so many false ideas, ideologies, messages that are disruptive and divisive and worldly. Father, we know that this is a description of everyone who is outside of Christ. Their thinking is futile. But Father, the only reason why we can say that our thinking has been renewed is because of your grace. So Father, continue. We ask, we plead with you that you continue to renew our thinking Continue, Father, to renew our minds so that we may not follow the world, but may follow you. We depend upon the work of the Spirit, Lord. Help us to cling to the Lord Jesus and to depend upon him and your written word. And all these things we pray and we ask in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.